How's everybody? Doing all right? Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, well, good morning. My name's Jim, and I'm uh, really glad you're here. I'm one of the pastors here, too, and uh, especially if you're new, I uh, just want to say welcome. I'm so, I, I just love next weekend. It kind of is like, it's such a fun weekend if you've been here before. So I hope you'll be back, and I hope you'll bring some people to join you. I, I just want to say something real quick about Maurice and Bill uh, sharing. I, I saw the stuff yesterday going on in Charlottesville, and I just, my first tendency was to think, gosh, those idiots, you know, like, just be honest. That was my first, like, what a bunch of, and I, it just, it arises anger in me. And, um, you know, it's so funny. I'm a, I'm a white guy who was born in Boulder, Colorado, upper middle class family. My parents paid for my college, got out with no debt or anything like that. And I just, thinking about how entitled I have been in some ways. And we were on a staff retreat this weekend and um, I was saying something, we got into a discussion about middle schoolers and how do we have middle schoolers be a part of this church in an ever-increasing way. And I said something that I thought was just a normal everyday comment and Maurice kind of like chuckled a little bit and I said, what? And he said, well, when you say that, you mean this, but when I hear you say that, I hear this. And it, uh, what I had said, it was borderline offensive. And I, I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way, but it gave me the pause to go, instead of me looking out there saying those dummies, it made me just realize like we got to look at ourselves, even for those of us who think that there's not an ounce of anything racist in us. It's good to take a check and go, is there anything in me, Lord, that needs to be gotten rid of? So I don't know about you. I think Maurice is one of the most brave human beings I've ever met in my life, and I'm really glad that he's here. So anyway, yeah. Um, uh, all right, so I, I, we're going to dive in. We're going to uh, keep going. This is the last weekend of the series because next weekend we want to start fresh with our big kickoff. And so uh, our, our last weekend in the series, it's called Tug of War, and it's about the life of Nehemiah. She's uh, just an amazing story. I, I'm just stunned that 2,500 years ago, something could happen and get written down in the scripture. And God uses that. God uses the Bible in this just crazy way that like that stuff matters for today and for our lives. And so what, what I want to do is walk through that book this morning in kind of a summary way and just go, where are you in this story? And my invitation, I think this morning to all of us is to go, where are we? You don't ever read the Bible for trivia, read it for where am I at in this and what's God speaking to me? Before I do that, I have to tell you, I'm a little bummed it's kind of sad. You know, I, something about me when I teach, I just, I have a little fetish. I have something that I just love. I have something that is really important to me that gives me safety and security and <laughs> comfort. And I love my flip chart. <laughs> and I, I just feel like lately Bill's been making fun of me for my flip chart. Have you noticed that? And I use it because it helps, you know, it helps uh, me kind of organize my thoughts. It gets on the board. I don't actually care if it helps you, but it just, you know, it's good for me to do. And I think I've, I've, I've been wounded so much by Bill's comments that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not use my flip chart today. As you know, I'm just not a fighter. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and put this away. I'm going to take it back here into the back where all the ascent magic secrets are hid. 
right back here. So I'm going to set this down right next to the pixie dust and Chris's unicorn food. And uh, we're going to leave that back here, and that's going to be that. Actually, um, Bill, could you come up for a second? Bill Stevens, I know you hear me and you're out there. Could you come up onto the stage for just a moment, please? If you're sitting near Bill, make him come right now. Bill. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we're, we're not doing uh, the flip chart today. Uh, Bill, what I want you to do, bro, is uh, stand right here, okay. if you could, please. And um, I want to, uh, this is really good for your lats. Yes, right there, right there, just like that. And so we're going to get into it today. What do you think? How do you like me now? I think this is great. Yeah. All right. All right, so we're going to start with... a massive step up. I mean, this was like 1995. <laughs> Are you saying the flip chart's old school? It might be. <laughs> All right, so our, you don't have to hold it. Put it down. Chris is going to help us. Get out of here. I'm just making a point. But, yeah. <laughs> this is good. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, good job, Bill. Good job. I, I, we're, gonna, we're just going to go five times as big since, you know... That's how it's going to work. So, okay. So here's, here's what we're going to do. I want to lead you through uh, the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at what happens in there. And specifically what we're going to look at, Nehemiah is an unbelievable, um, it is a guide for how someone might be called by God to do something in the world and then put it into action. And some of us, we, we approach life and we go, man, I sure wish, I sure wish God, I feel like I kind of go through the motions and, you know, day after day is the same routine and I just, I'm going and I'm surviving and I maybe look around my life and I see other people that are maybe called and seem like God is doing something kind of cool with them, but maybe not so much with me. And I want to kind of start today by saying I think, and I think the Bible is real, actually clear on this, that what's so cool and so encouraging to me is that I think God has called every single person and given them some sort of gifts to do something in the world that goes far beyond them. Every single person. So out of a hundred, if I were to say every single person, what percentage is that? Anybody? I know school doesn't start till Thursday or whatever, but a hundred percent of us have been called in some way by God to do something in the world. I, I personally don't find this any ounce of that guilt inducing. I found that so much invigorating of like, oh, that means I'm worth something. That means God even believes in me maybe more than I believe in myself. Awesome. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to give you a little glimpse of Nehemiah, and I'm going to give you some background so that you can walk through this story with me, and, and hopefully it makes you know, more sense. Because I recognize a lot of us probably never read the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, and, and it's always important when you're approaching a book of the Old Testament to get some context on it. So basically, here's what's going on. This is uh, obviously the Mediterranean Sea, and right here is about where Israel has their land. This is, we're gonna, and we're going to track back right now to about 600 before Jesus was born. Israel has this land. They've been given it. They've, God has like 
brought them here. It's their space. They identify themselves with this land. This explains, if you don't know, a lot of what's going on in the world today. This is where Israel's located, and God has led them in there. And so, you know, this is a huge piece of who they are as a people. Now, what happens in about 586 BC, there's a little nation over here called Babylon. And Babylon shows up at Israel's door one day, and there is a siege of the city, Jerusalem. They come to the gates, they lock them in. A lot, a lot of you guys know the way that this would happen in ancient times. The way that they would uh, do warfare is we're going to keep them in their city and starve them out until they give up and capitulate or we can break the walls down, whatever. This is exactly what Babylon does. They come to the gates. They uh, eventually are able to take over Israel. How sad is this? They take the people. Oh, they take the people and they deport them in chains. They walk across the desert for a couple hundred miles back to Babylon. They're taken out of their land. Gone. History. Burned to the ground. So Israel is taken into Babylon. And they're there now as captives. But there's a dream among a lot of people. There's a dream that someday God might bring them back. That's the story of Nehemiah. This is where we pick up uh, because Nehemiah is someone who's uh, uh, in the land of Babylon, who's a Jew who is actually working for the king and has a dream of going back. Now, there's some uh, Jews that have gone back to see Israel Little kind of parties that go back and then they come back and report on what's going on. And so we're going to pick up the story in Nehemiah and we're going to walk through a process. And walk through a process by which God does an amazing thing through him. Okay, so here's, here's Nehemiah. We're going to start at the very beginning. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what happens. It says this. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev... Uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. This is one of these parties that had gone back, and now they're coming back to report on what they found out. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. How are things going? They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This is bad news. So here's what Nehemiah does when he hears this. He says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. You know, Nehemiah is kind of an interesting guy because um, we look at him and we go, oh man, poor Nehemiah, he's a captive off in this other land. But actually he had kind of a plush setup. He's the cupbearer to the king, which means he's got the ear of the person who's kind of the highest, you know, in the, um, in the nation. And so he's not sitting in a dungeon somewhere. Nehemiah actually has it okay. Nehemiah is kind of like some of us, right? Like we, We've got some things going for us. It could be really easy, really easy just to keep going, keep going with the status quo. Kind of do this to some of the things that maybe are out there. Maybe even do this to some of the things that we might feel like God is kind of pushing us toward. 
And so here's Nehemiah, and he's in this situation. Things are going pretty well, and he gets presented with something that absolutely breaks his heart. Is he going to stay and do what he's been doing? Because it would be easier. Certainly would be easier for him. Or might he step out and do something about this vision, this mission that God's going to put him on? Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, says this. He says, as Christians, we do not have the right to take our talents, abilities, experiences, opportunities, and education and run off in any direction we please. We lost that right at Calvary. Calvary is the place where Jesus died. In other words, what he's saying is, man, it's such incredible news that Jesus thought us worthy enough to die for. Now, that's a high price he paid. What are we going to do with that? We've been bought at a price. What's your life now going to translate into? And then he says this, but then why would we dream of such a thing? Why would we dream of just spending the rest of our lives on ourselves? God has a vision for your life. What could possibly be more fulfilling than that? Um, I want us to see this process here. This is a problem not having the flip chart is you got to erase, but you know, I'll be okay. We're going to walk through this process. And what I want us to do is I want us to see the process by which God is using Nehemiah to do something that changes, that changes the world in a direction toward Jesus. So I want you to see the process, and I want us to also see that each step of the way, there's a danger. And so what's happening here is you're seeing... That Nehemiah, gosh, I'm terrible. That Nehemiah is being given a mission, a vision. And and not like some of us, like when we hear that word vision, we think, oh, I know somebody once that had this like mental picture that God gave them. It was like a glimpse into the future, you know, kind of like a prophecy type thing. When I talk about vision today, what I mean is you have something in your life that God has given to you that is you are completely dissatisfied with the current state of things and it must change and you have a vision for the future that is different than the current situation. That's vision. That's Maurice going, it's not okay what's happening out there in our country and getting a vision for how that could be different. It's, you know, you go on a trip and you see in maybe a different part of the country or world where people are living in a way that breaks your heart and you're like, that's not okay. Maybe you're somebody that sees somebody, a young person that you you see going down the wrong path some way. You go, that is not okay. And God puts on your heart a mission and a vision, a vision of the future that is different than the present. I don't care if you are in seventh grade or you're 70. I guarantee you that God has something for you. Now, in order to just release the pressure on that too, there's seasons, all right? Some of us, we go through seasons where it's like, man, I've just experienced tremendous loss. Your mission might be to recover. Or maybe you have five little kids in your house under the age of six your mission is to figure that out. Good luck. You know, we know that there are seasons and missions and visions can change. 
But man, I don't know about you, but I just, I, it's a sign of God's love to me that God actually thinks that I'm worthy of doing something in the world that is bigger than me. A mission and a vision. What are you called to you? Everybody has one. The question is, how do you figure that out? I love this little part of the story where it says, um, comes back, things are not going well in Judea. The gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and what does he do? He weeps. If you want to try to figure out what that mission vision is that God has for you, maybe start by asking the question, when's the last time that you cried over something that had nothing to do with you? When's the last time you saw something and wept that was something that was outside? You know, or, or for those of you guys who are tough and don't cry, when's the last time you were stirred? You know? When, when did you get angry? Guys, that's a sign. There's, it's not a mistake. Jesus gets mad in the scripture. You know, three or four times you see Jesus get mad. And it's so cool about him is it's usually not about Jesus has been wronged. It's about somebody else was wronged and Jesus is not happy with that. Where do you see that in your own life? Where's the last time that you go, that's not okay how that person was treated? Guys, it's probably a sign of what that call is to that God is nudging away at you. The danger is, danger is that you'll use these three words. Well, I definitely can't do anything about that. I can't change the culture of my school because I'm just a freshman in high school can't do anything about some of the poverty I see around me because I'm just a college student. You know, I can't impact that problem that I see over there because I'm just a software engineer. There's no way that God could ever use me to help mend that relationship. I'm just a, I'm just a stay-at-home parent. Guys, don't you love that God just wrecks those words. I'm just a whatever you are. I can't do anything about racism. I'm just a white guy who was born in Boulder, Colorado. God takes those words and just says no. If it's a God-given mission and vision, we need to get rid of these words out of our language. So what does... What does Nehemiah do? Let's just pretend for a second. Maybe you're a little clearer. Maybe you have an idea and you're like, ah, I know what my mission and vision are. I, I'm pretty sure that God has me fill in the blank. What do you do with that? If, if the story of Nehemiah were Hollywood and a script writer were doing this, I think what they would do is they would go, okay, uh, Nehemiah, this guy is going to come in. We're going to have this dramatic scene. He's going to tell him about the gates. Nehemiah is going to burst into tears, fall on the ground. He's going to pull himself back up. He's going to burst into the king's chambers, walk up to the king and say, send me back. You know, like th that would make good Hollywood. This is not what he does. I want you to notice in the scripture what the next stage in that process is that God is going to help use change in him. Given a mission and vision. Now, did you notice at the very beginning of the passage I read you, it said, in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, and it tells a story about these guys coming to give a report. 
Look at how chapter 2 starts now. Chapter 2, Nehemiah says this. Early the following spring, month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. You guys see that first clause? Put that up there. Early the following spring. When was he given that mission, vision, that dissatisfaction with the status quo? Remember? Late autumn. So let's pretend it's our month. That's like late November, early December. He sat on it. He sat on it for all of this, or the last part of December, for January, for February. Finally, at the end of March, early April, something happens. He doesn't storm into the king's office. He waits. Guys, one of the most powerful things that you can do is have the ability, the self-control, when God gives us a stirring, to let it bake. Let it seep in. The rest of chapter 1 is all about Nehemiah and God talking now. It's all about prayer of like, we got to let this vision marinate. Why? Because there's a huge danger. Immature visions, they tend to die. An immature vision that hasn't been soaked with God will tend to die. Why? Because for the most part, you guys know this, for the most part, the world does not like change. You might find, you know, your 10, 15%, whatever that is, that are early adopters. But for the most part, the world isn't real excited about the change that you're going to bring. Don't present them with an immature vision. Man, when we know what God's calling us to, soak with it. Involve God. Maybe, maybe a person that's trusted or two to help pray with you and think about this. But, man... Nehemiah does not make the mistake of bursting into the king and presenting him with an immature vision because he's getting a vision now that what he wants to do is he wants to go back to Jerusalem and he is going to rebuild the walls and return that city to the state that it should be. But he sits with it. And he continues to do it. So, so look what happens. He goes, in, he goes into the king, says, I never appeared sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, well, why are you looking so sad? You don't, you don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This is brave stuff now that he's doing in the presence of the king. Remember, this is the, like, these are the people that are holding them captive. But the king says, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven. And guys, just stop right there. How cool is this? This is called prayer on the fly. Like, don't make the mistake of relegating prayer to like, I wake up in the morning and I'm going to pray and then I don't ever pray again. Or uh, prayer is a mealtime thing. Man, I love this example. It's prayer on the fly. It's the conversations. It's like God isn't just relegated to certain little pieces of your life. He's in the whole thing. So I'm going to involve him in every moment. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king... And if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city 
where my ancestors are buried? And it's crazy. He says, yes. He sends him. And so Nehemiah travels back. He gets there. He starts to meet with some of his other fellow Jews, and they start to think through what are they going to do. And yet, here's the interesting thing. Nehemiah still doesn't tell them. He still isn't being completely forthright about what it is. He's still waiting for the right moment. Look at, what he, look at what happens here. He's meeting now back in Jerusalem. He's traveled back. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. He's keeping it close to the vest. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. I'm keeping this quiet. Uh, next passage. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Man, I want a sword right now. How awesome is that? You know what he does? First of all, he does step three. He does the thing that every one of us need to do. We might be given a great mission by God, some kind of vision on the future, and we may have baked that thing, but eventually what every vision from God has to have is someone willing to leap. Will you jump and go for it? And finally, Nehemiah finds this moment and he goes, it's time. Man, and this is textbook leadership right here. He starts by taking the dissatisfaction he has about what's going on right now, and he transfers it to these guys. He says, you know, the, you know the situation we're in. You can look around and see for yourself the walls, how they're burnt down. Let's rebuild it and end this disgrace. Beautiful job of taking his own mission and vision and communicating that to somebody else. And now he has a team. But it didn't come without him being willing to take the leap. Man, when, when, <laughs> when Bill and I... So if you're new to Ascent, uh, Ascent is just, we're three and a half years old now. Uh, yeah, coming up on our fourth birthday, right around Christmas time. And man, Bill and I went through this process. We felt like God had given us a real vision for like, gosh, it seems like this area needs a church like what we're envisioning. And we had that in our minds. And then we waited why did we wait? Because we were so smart in following Nehemiah's advice. We waited because we were terrified. We didn't wait one winter. We waited like 10, you know, like we, we were afraid. Because at some point, you guys know, you, you have to, anybody who's started something like this, you, there comes a moment where you have to walk into your boss's office and say, um, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave. And yes, my next step is not assured success. In fact, there's no paycheck involved right off the bat. Terrifying. That mission and vision better be strong and it better have baked pretty solid to get to the point where you leap. And maybe some of us, the danger is we're sitting on the edge and we can't leap because the danger is the fear of risk. Man, you know what's funny about following Jesus? I'm just, you tell me if I'm wrong. 
the idea that there is a risk-free follower of Jesus doesn't exist. Guys, God will call us to something that's beyond ourselves, and in doing so, there will always be risk involved. Otherwise, there's no risk involved. Real easy for us to point to ourselves as the ones that made it happen. Risk always means that God needs to get involved. The danger that keeps us on the edge, afraid to leap, is often the fear of what can happen. And so we got to be sure, got to be sure, God, is this, is this what you have? And so for us, anyway, starting this church, it was like finally got to the point where we're like, we're sure, and it's worth the risk. And so we took a leap. And so did Nehemiah. He takes this leap, and things start to roll. And just like us, at least when we, you know, started Ascent, one of the first things, after you take the leap, what is the first thing that you're going to experience, generally speaking? You take the leap into what God wants for you, what will you face? I can pretty much guarantee you, you will face opposition. And expect it. Look at, look at what happens with Nehemiah. You skip down a couple more to the next passage about Sambalet. So there's this local guy, Sambalet, who he's kind of like Mr. Uh, tribal Chief guy. And how do those guys feel about when somebody comes to their town and starts building walls or their area? Oh, like a new, you know, force is coming into my zone. He's not going to like this. So Sanballat is somebody that is going to cause Nehemiah some heartache. So Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? And charred ones at that, you can skip to the next passage here. Tobiah the Ammonite, who, and Tobiah is, you know, his little buddy who also has his little crew. Tobiah the Ammonite was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Whoa! Ancient humor, right? I love it, right? Yeah, a fox could knock that down. Point is, he's facing opposition. Guys, you know if you've tried to enact any kind of change, you will run into opposition first thing, and we have to expect it. It was no different for us starting Ascent. And the funny thing about opposition is it usually comes from sources that you wouldn't expect, and we certainly experience that. Opposition is going to be there. The question is, how do we respond? So I know a bunch of you know me. Unfortunately, um, man... I hate this about me. The way I'm wired is I face opposition and my, my wife can tell you, my tendency is to just fight back. My tendency is like, boom, you, you step on me, then I'm coming right back at you. And some of you are like, oh, that's a good thing. You should. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a fighter. Here, here's my problem. I tend to do this. I tend to fight alone. Here's the beauty of what I see with Nehemiah. 
he does the same thing every time this little Sambalat and Tobiah guy show up or when he faces problems from even inside his own kind of camp. Over and over in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah does not fight alone. Instead, what he does is he ends up doing what? He ends up praying. Gosh, if that were my first instinct, that'd be so awesome. When Nehemiah faces opposition, his response is to pray. He's going to fight. He's just not going to fight alone. Nehemiah is going to come into this going, yeah, this was a mission and vision that was given to me by God. Why would I now start walking on my own when I face opposition? No, no, no. I'm going to call on the God that brought me here. And that's exactly what he does. So we go through this process, right, where it's the mission and vision. We wait, we leap, we face opposition. And then this last one, I think, is... um, the most dangerous of the five. Things start going pretty well. He's got the people going. He's brilliantly navigating this opposition. He's, you know, there's, there's people building the walls that know nothing about masonry. They're like, it's awesome. They're building these walls and they're like, you know, merchants by day. And, but they're up on the wall with like, a brick in one hand and a sword in the other waiting for Sambalat and his guys to show up. You haven't read the book. It's so fun. So he's brilliantly led them and the walls actually start coming up. And he experiences something that is the most dangerous thing that I think in this process we can encounter. Success. Sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Man, I think about this sometimes with a scent. I think, gosh, we, we went through this process, and by some accounts, you know, it's not normal for a church plant to grow the way that a scent has grown. And so Bill and I will sometimes hear from people going, wow, that's incredible. Like, you guys are amazing. Wow, that's so cool. What success you guys have experienced I just got to tell you that to me is like, it's great, but it can be the most dangerous thing depending on how we look at it. Um, you see this in Nehemiah. I want to show you this and just track with me on this. Nehemiah has a friend. It's a guy named Shemaiah. I don't know. Everybody had an ah at the end of their names back then. So Shemaiah is his buddy. And Nehemiah has gone to Shemaiah, and they've, he knows him. He trusts him. He's led a pretty big deal here. He's not just going to anybody. He's going to go to people he really trusts, and he knows their history. And you can infer when I read this to you, you can infer from how the passage is laid out that he's very familiar with him and his family. I think it's safe to say that this friend Shemaiah has been with Nehemiah through some of the trouble And Shemaiah shares the same mission and vision that Nehemiah does. But look, look what happens when he goes to visit his buddy Shemaiah. They're in the middle of the success. Things are going well. And it says, later I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah and grandson of Mahatabal. Gosh, that's hard. Who was confined to his home. 
So you see, he knows him. He knows his dad and his grandpa. Like, this is somebody he's been around. And Shemaiah says, hey, let's meet together inside the temple of God to Nehemiah. Let's go into the temple of God. Let's go into the temple and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. So we're not going to get into all the details behind this, but just on this one, trust me as I tell you, if Nehemiah takes his advice, it will unravel everything he has done up to this point. This is a trap. This is Shemaiah trying to take Nehemiah and he is trying to trap him. And Nehemiah says to him, but I replied, should someone in my position run from anger or run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He's on the take with the bad guys. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Guys, Shemaiah is a sad story. Shemaiah shares the same mission and vision that Nehemiah does, but he gives in to something. He gives in to something that a pastor friend of mine refers to as his shadow mission. Shadow mission is this. If everybody in this room, all of us have been given a gift by God, gifts by God, a mission by God that points not at ourselves, but actually points toward what God is doing in the world. And we're supposed to use those gifts for that purpose. A shadow mission is the thing that takes that gift and just perverts it a little bit and points it this way toward me. A shadow mission is when your gifts are taken and just twisted a little bit. And it stops becoming about God and it starts becoming about us. Question for you. Is Shemaiah the only guy that's ever lived that has a shadow mission? If 100% of us have a mission and vision, anybody want to guess how many of us have a shadow mission? Every one of us, every single one of us has a shadow mission. I, I'm just, I'll throw this out to you. As important as it is to understand what does God have us do is our mission and vision in the world, I think it's equally as important for us to understand how can that get twisted into ourselves so that we can actually know and be on guard of what is that shadow mission that can steal away what God wants to do in our lives. You see this in the Gospels? Man, you know, Judas, Jesus' buddy, who'd been with him for years. I don't know if you know this about Judas, but Judas' gift was that he was actually really good with money. Judas was kind of the guy in the crew that kept track of the funds, and his kind of mission was be a part of this team, help them to steward their resources well so that the ministry that Jesus is bringing into the world about the kingdom of God is going to take off. That's your mission, Judas. Anybody remember what snuck up on Judas at the end and got him? 30 pieces of silver. 
his, shadow, his mission was to serve God through his incredible skill with money. His shadow mission was that that skill of money became greed. And his shadow mission overtook him. Guys, every one of us has that in us. Man, a sense shadow mission could easily become, oh, it's about making ourselves look good. Man, may that never be true of this church or us as individuals. I wrote down a few things. I just was thinking this week, um, just to give you some kind of concrete examples. Let's just say for a second, you're, you're a high schooler. You're a middle schooler. You've been given a gift by God, let's just say, of humor. You're hilarious. People love your sense of humor. Your mission, part of your mission is to bring incredible joy to other people. That's an awesome gift. Your joy is to encourage people, to love people, to give them a glimpse that there's more than just the mundane every day. What a cool, awesome mission. Your shadow mission, and we've all seen this, you've seen it, your shadow mission is to take that humor and somehow use it against other people. I do this to degrade. The mission goes from here to here. It just tilts this far. Maybe you've been told that you're good at something or you've even been promoted. Your mission is to have the same kind of humility and hunger that got you there. Pretty much everybody who gets promoted is humble and hungry. It's a beautiful thing. Your shadow mission could be what a guy named Chuck Swindoll calls promotion erosion. You know, you, you've got this humility and hunger that starts to shift into, I actually earned this. That's your shadow mission. Maybe you're brilliant at sales. Man, you're killing it. You're, your company organization is just loving you because you're bringing in money. Man, don't despiritualize that. That's a great gift. Your, your mission is to continue to do that because you can have incredible generosity around that. You can impact the world with resources in a way that a lot of us never will be able to. Not only that, you are like, you're making jobs for other people. Those people are having families because of the resources they have now. They're being generous with their money. That's your mission. What an amazing thing. Your shadow mission is you're so good at that. You're so good at being persuasive that you can take that gift and turn it toward you and it turns into manipulation instead. Just this far. Or maybe you're somebody who is just an incredible lover of people. You are compassionate. You are tenderhearted. You care for people like I, could, I just can't. Your mission is to be that just rock-solid person in relationships. But your shadow mission may be that sometimes you tend to control. That love for people sometimes leads you to want to control other people and put them in a box. And instead of them being free, you feel like you put them in a cage. That's your shadow mission. Because everybody's got one. Everybody's got a mission. Everybody's got a shadow mission. But what I want us to do today, and I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to give us just a second. I'm going to leave a little space. I'm going to 
I'm just going to start with a brief prayer. And we're going to leave this up on the board. What I want you to do for just a second is go, where am I? If you're going to step into the story of Nehemiah and find yourself, are you here? Are you waiting? Are you on the edge trying to leap? Are you facing opposition right now? Or are things going pretty well and we need to be careful? Can we take a second and pray over this? And then when, I'm, when we're done looking at it, kind of in silence, I'm going to pray for us. So God, give us just a moment here to look at this and just ask you to speak to us about where we're at in our lives and how we can learn from this life of Nehemiah. And most importantly, Lord, to say I'm not alone in this, that you are going to guide us on our next step forward. So God, speak to us right now. Lord, we love you. We thank you that uh, you see us worthy enough to have something that you're going to send us after. Um, God, give us the grace when we can't figure that out. Uh, we know that you will. Remove all sense of guilt from us if we're struggling on this, like I know I do. Um, but move us, Lord, gently toward the life that you have envisioned for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.